This is a HeadGum Podcast. Support for the Black Girl Nerds Podcast comes from Apps Without Code, a super cool project headed up by my girl, Tara Reed. Tara is a non-technical founder over at Apps Without Code. It's a Detroit-based startup that helps folks build apps without using a single line of code. This stuff is bananas. Seriously, it really does blow my mind. And she's got this complete toolkit packed with everything you need to get started. Grab your own by texting TOOLKIT1 to 44222. Just text TOOLKIT1 to 44222. You can start building apps like a boss. No code required. You hear me? No code required. Tara's gotten into 500 startups and made hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. All the apps she built by herself, you guys. So if you've got an awesome idea banging around in your head somewhere, just text Toolkit1 to 44222 before someone else steals your idea. Hi, I'm Sujata Day. I'm playing Sarah on Insecure, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Daryl Bell from Planet Earth. Now, actually, I'm from a different world, school days, and, well, Chicago. There you go. I'm from there, too. And it's a joy and a pleasure to be here on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is LaToya Morgan. I am a writer on Into the Badlands, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. We are the Lucas Pros, and we were just on Black Girl Nerd Podcast, and it's fantastic. And listen to it every every day, every hour, because they are awesome. Hi, I'm Melody Cooper, director of The Sound of Darkness, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Gary Anthony Williams, a.k.a. Uncle Rocker. This is your Uncle Rocker. All right, now I'm starring that Bebop and Teenage Mood and Ninja Turtles out of the shadows. And you is listening to the Black Girl Nerd Podcast. Why the hell they let black women have a podcast? I will never know. For tuning in to episode 88 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Queen Sugar, Tiff, and How to Tell You're a Douchebag. Three segments. In our first segment, we interview the one, the only, the magnificent, the brilliant Ava DuVernay. She has a new show called Queen Sugar on the Oprah Winfrey Network with a stunning cast and some of the most beautiful cinematography you will ever witness. This is a one-on-one interview with Karan, and Ava chats about how she put the cast together, what inspired her to work on this project, and why having a team of women directors is so important. In our second segment, we interview Cameron Bailey. Cameron Bailey is the artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival, also known as TIFF. This interview is done by both Jacqueline and Lauren, and Cameron discusses the selection process over at TIFF, how he got started, as well as its popularity over the years and how it's grown substantially. 
If you check out the Twitter BGN TIFF hashtag, we are covering the event. There will be live streaming coverage from Periscope. There's photos. Also, stay tuned for videos on our YouTube channel that will be uploaded, as well as some features on the website. We are representing BGN hard over at TIFF, so definitely check that out. In our third segment, we have Tahir Jetter. Tahir is the director and producer of How to Tell Your Douchebag, a man living in New York City about behaviors that needed to be unpacked in men about entitlement and arrogance issues, as well as how they approach relationships. So this is another one-on-one interview with Tahir and KB as he discusses that film. That's our show. I know we had a bit of a hiatus because of Dragon Con. Uh, If I sound a little nasal, (laughs) it's because I have a cold and I got sick and I am suffering from con crud. So stay tuned for editorials, videos, audio interviews straight from Dragon Con. That will be coming within the next couple of weeks. And don't forget... Subscribe if you have not done so already. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, I think you should check out other podcasts we have done in the past. And you can easily subscribe. You can use iTunes to do that. You can follow us on SoundCloud. You can follow us on Stitcher. We're also on Google Music and several third-party apps for listening to podcasts. So check out Black Girl Nerds. Talk about us. Share the wealth. Also use the hashtag BGM Podcast on Twitter. You can join in the feed with other listeners and talk about various episodes, whether it's this one or ones from a few months ago or maybe a couple years ago. Either way, share the love and let everybody know about our podcast. So for now, sit back, relax, have fun, enjoy, take notes. You never know what you'll get out of these shows. And we look forward to you tuning in to the next one. Sugar is the new series by OWN, also known as the Oprah Winfrey Network, based on the novel by Natalie Bazil. The series is executive produced and directed by Ava DuVernay. The remarkable thing about this series, though, is that every episode is directed by women. Ava proudly uses the hashtag InclusiveCrew on Twitter to show how a TV property can be made with women and people of color. Queen Sugar made its debut last week with record numbers for OWN. We here at BGN are proud to use the hashtag GimmeSugar with the Queen Sugar hashtag on Twitter. We started the hashtag and guess what? Oprah Winfrey's using it and Ava has co-signed on it. So join us next Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time when we live tweet the next episode of Queen Sugar. And here is Ava and Karan to talk about the new show. This is Karan for your Black Girl Nerds podcast. Today we're talking Queen Sugar. Tender, raw, and heartbreaking. It's sensual and stunning in all its melanated glory. Queen Sugar is absolutely a triumph. It moves at the pace of life. It pulls on your rhythm. And it's unlike anything I've seen on television. There's no hurry, no rush to get through the story or the storylines. It's quite Southern, laid back, and it's ready. And today we have the pleasure of having the executive producer and director of Queen Sugar and the ruler of all she surveys, the one and only Ava DuVernay is with us. Hello, what a lovely introduction. Thank you, (laughs) Welcome, welcome, welcome. First, I have to ask, um, are you always this laid back? You are so cool. Oh, thank you. That's sweet. No, I'm not always laid back. I'm quite <laughs> intense when I'm on the set because we got things to do. We have beauty to make, and that takes work. So you must focus and be intentional, and we need to get it done. But when I'm not working, I try to just take it easy. I heard that. Well, can you tell us a little bit about how the series Queen Sugar came to be? Yeah, it actually was, you know, really a gift from Oprah Winfrey. You know, I'd worked with her on Selma, and we got to know each other really, really well on that. Um, 
And I think, you know, after Selma, it was really lovely that she continued to kind of want to be friends and be in touch. So after a director finishes any movie, there's always about seven to ten days where they'll usually take off while the editor assembles all of what's been shot. So you can get into the edit- editing room and start to edit it. And during that seven to ten days, she invited me down to her property in Maui. And so I found myself down in Maui eating the most delicious food, walking on the greenest grass, because, you know, it's Oprah's grass. <laughs> the, the water is bluer than everybody else's water. <laughs> Everything tastes better. The, the pillows are softer. It's just, it's just you're at Oprah's place in Maui, and it's as it should be. And as we're sitting on the porch one day, rocking like old ladies on the rocking chair, looking out at the view, she talks to me about this book and asks, you know, if I would give it a read and see if there was anything there. And I read it and instantly felt a real emotional connection to the story based in the South, you know, about this extended family. My family is based in the South. I live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Charlie Bordelon West's family lives in the South. She lives in Los Angeles. Um, you know, a lot of issues around Ralph Angel and, you know, being a formerly incarcerated person, which are, you know, issues that are really close to me as reflected in my other film, Middle of Nowhere, and my new documentary, The 13th. Yes. The issue that I'm really passionate about. And then just New Orleans itself, I just love that place. I feel like it's one of the last places in America that really has a cultural texture, a real ethnic texture to the city that hasn't been completely homogenized and, like, gentrified mm-hmm. away. And so um, so I kind of fell in love with the story and immediately started to think about how to make it a series. Now, when we last spoke, you touched on women directing episodic television and some of those challenges. How important was it for you to gather an all-woman directorial crew? Well, I originally wanted to direct all of the episodes myself, um, but when Own and Warner Brothers, our great partners at Warner Horizon, decided that they wanted more story, they wanted to go from eight episodes to 13 episodes, I knew that it was impossible for me to do all 13 hours alone. So I invited some really amazing women to direct with me, just women whose films I love on the independent festival circuit over the years, women who I've gotten to know, just other directors um, on the scene. And so it became really important when I had the opportunity to make the hiring decisions that I did what Shonda Rhimes did for me when she hired me for my first episode mm-hmm. of television, my daily episode of Scandal. Um, and I hadn't even really been looking to break into television, but immediately after I did that episode, Many, many offers flooded into me from other TV shows, kind of like she'd given me the stamp of approval, so it was okay for everyone else to take a risk on a lady director. And so it's a ridiculous premise. It's the way that this industry works. Um, It's the third. But these women who I had known had really tried to direct. You know, Victoria Mahoney had shadowed, and, you know, um, Sally Richardson had taken every meeting, and, you know, Nima Barnett used to direct television prolifically back in the day and just couldn't get her foot back in the door after she'd taken a break to, to tend, tend to some family issues. And so I knew all these amazing women, and I just wanted to give them the opportunity that Sonda gave to me. But also, not just give them opportunity, they gave us a gift because they're mm. all badass. And so they just killed these episodes. I mean, just really fantastic, beautiful, sumptuous images. Um, they really, you know, just did such a beautiful job. I'm excited for people to see what they can do and get to know who they are. I can't say enough about it. It really is amazing. And it's so, I think it's going to resonate with so many people on so many different levels. There are levels to this thing. It, it really is. It's beautifully shot. And in Queen Sugar, this family experiences tragedy and their relationships are really complex. But such care was taken to uncover their issues without diminishing the depth of any of the characters. What do you attribute that to? Well, you know, Natalie Bazell's beautiful book was a fantastic foundation. And, you know, when you're creating a television show that has to be 13 hours long in its first season, we've already been renewed for a second season at 16 episodes. That's 16 more hours. You have to create story points that are complex and deeply textured so that, you know, there are places to go with the characters. And so, you know, a big part of trying to make sure that we had lots of layers to unfold to make sure that there was a complexity and a nuance in the way that they were built initially. And so, you know, Natalie Bazell, again, was super generous in letting me take her, you know, original material and, you know, expand and extend and kind of remix it uh, so that we can, um, you know, add additional characters, change characters a little bit, do what we needed to do to make sure that the story is still being 
told in an exciting way, you know, three years from now. Now, we see a few familiar faces, but many of these beautiful, new, this is like the most attractive cast I've freaking ever seen. They are gorgeous. Many of them are, they're, are not, they're not hard on the eyes. Not at yeah. all. Not at <laughs> all. Was the casting of lesser known actors intentional? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely want people to feel like they need this family, and so it's easier to feel like you know them if you don't know them uh, as actors and as stars. Uh, you know, kind of our, our most known actors would be Regina Wesley. Many, many people know her from Superman. Mm, mm, that's my She's girl. She's a completely <laughs> different character. Her look is different. She's, her vibe is different. She's such a great actor. She just sinks into the character of Norma Bordelone, so she kind of leaves Todd from True Blood behind in the first couple of scenes of Queen Sugar. And I don't think you really think about it, uh, that other character much again once you get inside of Nova. Mm-hmm. And then Dondre Whitfield is another character that you don't see in episode one, but you'll see him introduced in episode two, which is, you know, a, a great veteran character actor who's been being fine on television since he was Robert on the Cosby show. Yes. And that's his boyfriend. That's when I felt I wanted a boyfriend like Robert. Robert. So, uh, <laughs> I live out all my dreams through my TV shows. Um, I just was like, I'm going to make him boyfriend or a part of uh, this 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 series so so yeah it's uh it's been fun to put this cast together you know you really focus on talent and then also just the energy that someone's bringing their chemistry with each other the kindness of their heart because you've got to work around these people for a long time so it's just i have a really low tolerance for bad behavior people mm. being divas people being just doing too much it's like really y'all uh, this is a privilege and an honor Leave all the Hollywood at the door. Let's just do the work. And so all of these people were really, really up for that. And it was a beautiful chemistry on set. They just happened to be dropped there gorgeous. It was just <laughs> a byproduct. I mean, it wasn't on purpose. But literally, I put them all together, and we take a, I take a picture of them, and I'm just like, damn it. You guys are beautiful. It's like, wow. So it's, um, <laughs> it's been a really gorgeous experience in many ways. The, the pace of Queen Sugar is very different. And I, I mentioned in, in my intro that it moves at the pace of life. Was there a lot mm. of effort um, or thought that went into how the pace, or did that just happen organically? Yeah, it's really well said. If you hear me use that someplace, let's just know it came from Black Girl Nerds. Um, <laughs> definitely. No, I mean, it, it is, I mean it's reminiscent of, of some of my earlier films, I Will Follow, In Middle of Nowhere, yes. Liking to Let, you know, more of a luxurious pace, allowing people to, see themselves in it. You know, if you're cutting so fast and everything's moving so quickly, you're not able to really feel it, I don't think. And so there are moments, even in Selma, where we try to just slow things down. I'm yes. just a real proponent of relaxing and reflecting while you watch certain things. And you can't do that if you're not relaxed. You can't reflect if you're not relaxed. You can't kind of fill in the blanks if you're if we just cut so quickly and we're moving on to the next thing. So, you know, it requires patience. You have to actually sink into it like you... You're not going to really be watching the show while you're, like, making dinner and moving around the house before a quick quick glimpse and see what's happening. Like, you really got to say, I'm going to take some me time. I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to watch this and feel this and come out on the other side, you know, hopefully reflecting on your own life, you know, feeling things that you hadn't felt during the day. It's really kind of a meditative piece, I think. And so that was all very intentional. Now, none of the relationships are easy, but the intertwining of them is 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 really complex. But there's a lot of fierce love and spirituality and intensity in the loss and the grief, and it does feel fully present. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. That's what we want. We want you to be walking this walk and taking this journey with the characters. You know, feeling like you there's a privacy and an intimacy to what's unfolding, and that you're there to bear witness to it and you know, that proximity, that close proximity to the characters really only comes if you're going to take the time to let it happen, you know. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that I don't think we see in TV too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I love it. I love the plot-driven shows, which is kind of about a certain case or a certain thing or a certain romance. That stuff is, is super fun, and a lot of my friends make and, and are on those shows, and I love them. I think part of what you know I'm trying to do as a storyteller is to bring another option to the table because people of color should have as many options as people who aren't of color about what they get to see. And so while we have great plot-driven things, great comedies, you know, great high drama, we should also be able to have a show that kind of 
allows us to drink in the everyday magnificence of us in everyday life. So, yeah, everything was intentional. You know, some people may dig it and some people may not, but the point is to have options. You know, the point is to have an offering there for folks that do see something that they like in it. So I just ask people to give it a try for a couple episodes and see if it's something that speaks to them. And, you know, definitely with television, it's easy to just turn the channel when it's something that's, you know, not moving as quickly as you'd want. I just Mm -hmm. hope people give it a chance for the first episode and to see how it feels by the time you get to the end. You know, the only time that my director's cut will ever be shown on air is tonight, the debut night, um, because it will be commercial-free. Yes. So there's like 20 extra minutes of material in there that would have to be cut out. So every time you watch episode one-on-one from now on, it will have commercials, and so 20 minutes will be gone that you'll never see again. Wow. So Oprah was kind enough to kind of take the hit on commercial-free. Commercial-free means ain't nobody making no money. Right. right? So there ain't no commercials. <laughs> So, but, you know, she really understood that that first piece, uh, really wanting to people to get on board and see all the nuance of the characters and take their time with it. So hopefully people will accept that gift and watch it. I could sit at your feet and listen to you talk all day, but I do like to ask of all of our guests, what is the word, Sister Ava? Do you have a word for our black girl nerds, our young women, and our women who aspire to write, produce, direct, to move forward in their lives? Oh, gosh, you have to move forward without permission. Mm. You know, I always say this. There's no one to ask for permission for. We live in a culture and a society that's very permission-based. I don't believe in the whole mentoring, the whole networking, going to this thing to network, and the mentors, and trying to talk to people after a panel. Like, all of that's good for information, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's positioned to our young women as the way to get the thing that you want. You have to know somebody. You have to, you know, connect with someone. Someone has to let you do it. And all of that is permission-based. You know, you need a mentor who can introduce you to this or to tell you how to do this. And those things are fine if they're taken as a cherry on top. Mm -hmm. But I think too often they are offered as advice to people as the way to do the thing that you want to do. And that, to me, is um, in sharp contrast to what I've experienced. You know, I've experienced doing the work, focusing on what I have, moving forward where I am and taking a step forward towards where I want to go. And along the way, you meet and you attract people who want to help, who want to give you a hand, who want to refer you here or there. But that's not the core of the way you move forward. You move forward through your work. You attract people who want to help you. You don't try to find people to help you so that you can do the work. And that is the kind of the reversal that I think more sisters need to talk about and really embrace. That, um, that there's another way to move forward and it's within you as opposed to outside of you. That is so powerful. Now we've talked twice in a week's time. So in my head, you're now my play cousin. I want, <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank I'm you. Glad you. I'm glad you're my play cousin because literally when people call me auntie, I really, really want to take off my shoe and throw them out. I'm like, am I auntie now? I don't want to be auntie. People call me that on Twitter, and literally that's the surefire mm-hmm. way for me to ignore the tweet. Mm-mm. I cannot even read it if you're calling me auntie. But play cousin all day. Play cousin all day. Thank you so <laughs> much, Ava. You are such a gift. Thank you for not just your inspiration, but your example. I think a lot has been lost in our society about looking at having an example not to emulate, but to model themselves after, to um, even enjoy. You are a pleasure to watch Rise, and I want to thank you for your gift and for sharing it with all of us. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me, sis. I appreciate it. And hi to all the folks listening. Um, I really, really love the account, the podcast, everything you all are doing. And I just appreciate your support on this one. And on everything, I feel the support on everything I do. So just blessings and a lot of gratitude. Cameron Bailey is a Canadian film critic and festival programmer who has been the artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival since 2012. He's worked as a film reviewer for Now Canada AM, CBC Radio One, Take One, and other publications before joining TIFF as a programmer. Okay, guys, right now we're sitting down with Cameron Bailey, the artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival. How are you doing today, Cameron? 
I'm great. Awesome. So for those that don't know, um, what exactly does an artistic director do at a film festival? My job is to oversee the, the programming, the lineup of the festival. I've got a team of about 21 programmers. And my job is to make sure that the films that we all choose are great and um, reflect the best in cinema every year. Awesome. So how long have you been involved with the Toronto International Film Festival? This is my 20th festival. I was a programmer for several years in the 90s, went away. I was a film critic for many years as well, did some other stuff, and then came back uh, in this job as artistic director uh, nine years ago. This year's City to City participant is at Lagos, Nigeria, and I know I've seen Nollywood becoming increasingly popular due to uh, Twitter and Tumblr. What do you look for in selecting City to City participants? So with Lagos, you know, we've been keeping our eye on movies coming out of Nigeria for years, and we've shown some films, uh, Tunde Kalani's film, Abeni, I, I programmed many years ago. Uh, we showed a film that's kind of a, a Nollywood-British hybrid called Half of a Yellow Sun, based on the book, I you know, premiered that a few years back as well, and just kept our eye on what was happening. And you know, now it felt like it was the right time because two things were happening. One, um, the people who were making the, the straight up commercial Nollywood movies were making them at a higher level in terms of budget, amount of time they were spending, just the, the technical quality. And then on the other hand, there was a whole new generation coming up that were working almost in opposition to or in reaction to the commercial Nollywood movies. And so when it, was a, it was a way like seeing when Spike Lee came out and how he was reacting against Hollywood movies. And now there's, you know, a whole lot of kind of junior Spike Lees coming out of Lagos. And I thought, now's the time. Okay. With your previous selections, uh, you know, there's uh, London, uh, South Korea. Is there any attempt to diversify based on uh, region, language, or just the criteria you mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in addition to, to what I mentioned, um, we take as a given that the bulk of our festival and most festivals will be films from Western Europe, um, the big uh, capitals in East Asia and North America. And, you know, most film festivals, most of the commercial film industry is that. So with City to City, we are looking to go a little bit beyond that. London was a bit of an exception. We just thought there was some interesting work coming out of London and had seen filmmakers like Steve McQueen and Andrea Arnold and others who were sort of forged in the context of, of um, that capital city. But for the most part, we've gone to places like Athens and Buenos Aires and Mumbai and, and now Lagos. This year's TIFF lineup also features VR virtual reality selections. And I know this particular mm -hmm. technology has a major impact in the video gaming industry. It affects how developers work and how games are played. How do you see it impacting how stories are told and shared with audiences as it relates to film? I am not going to lie. I'm a massive VR skeptic. I am not sure that this is going to revolutionize cinema or storytelling. I haven't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. But what I do like is that artists are playing with the technology. They're trying to figure things out. Um, they're experimenting. And that may produce some, some great work. So we're essentially, you know, trying to follow the artists as they play with this, this new gear and, and see what they produce with it. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember VR from the 1990s when mm -hmm. it was a lot cruder <laughs> technically uh, and, and back then, people thought it was going to revolutionize things as well, right? And, and right. It, it didn't really. But what I found interesting was the notion of, of entering a world and putting on a different skin, so to speak, sometimes literally. And I found that interesting from the perspective of, you know, walking through this world, the real life world as a black man. And, and, I, and, and you know, what that does when you can pretend to be something else in terms of your identity in a virtual world. And, you know, we're seeing some of that again, but we're all used to doing that now, right? In between the 90s VR and the 2016 VR, we all have avatars, we all have different identities that we play with. We're all very, very used to that. Um, so then the question is now, what do artists do with it? Right. Um, so, you know, we've, we've selected five VR pieces. And interestingly, there is a wide range of of work that's being produced in terms of the the artist's identities and and what they're what they're playing with, and we're curious to see where they go. And you know maybe this time next year or the year after there will be 
you know, a, a, a feature length masterpiece in storytelling that is entirely in VR, but we're not there yet. And, uh, you know, we just want to be along for the ride until uh, we possibly get there. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because um, I read recently in an interview that you kind of said, you know, just to paraphrase that the sort of theatrical movie watching experience is essentially kind of dead. Can you kind of expand yeah. on that and what that means? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was maybe being a little bit provocative, but I guess what I meant was the habit that that maybe our parents and certainly grandparents grew up with in, in most parts of the world where movie going was the main uh, entertainment activity. And on a weekend, just about everybody went to the movies and you went to see a range of movies. That's dead. Now I think people go out to movies when you know the marketing push is so heavy that you feel like you're not a part of the cultural conversation if you don't see you know the new marvel movie or you know whatever it might be the new christopher nolan film but that those are few and far between you know and and the habit the regular habit of going to the, going out to the cinema has changed now we still watch movies but we watch movies you know uh from the comfort of our couch we watch movies that are actually long-form serial storytelling on that are called tv shows they're essentially movies but it's just a different form of watching them so i think the the old habits changed it's evolved into something else i i have no fear for the future of cinema i think you know there's there's going to be lots of things that will come along that will amaze us but i think the uh, movies as we used to understand them i think that that part's dead because of that, knowing that people are going to be watching films in a different format, does that do you combat that as a as a festival director, or do you use that in your selection process, knowing that people are going to see them in various mediums? You know, I think combating it is is just a losing game. <laughs> like, I think what you have to do is try to understand how do we watch movies now how do we how do we take in stories how do we tell each other stories how do we share them with each other and talk about them and figure out how a festival can serve that i don't think that the idea of people coming together to share stories is ever going to go away we used to sit around fires and do that you know tens of thousands of years ago we'll still be doing it tens of thousands of years from now if we survive as a species i think so i have no fear of that the question is how we'll do it right so but there's something about doing it with each other in person in a kind of social way that I think is just human. Um, and even if we all have thousands of films that we can watch alone, you know, with headphones on, uh, sitting in front of our laptops, that's not going to be the way we always want to watch movies, right? I think there is something social about storytelling because you want to be able to cry together and laugh together and be shocked and scared and surprised together. Um, with other people. And so I think festivals can do that almost better than any anything else because it, it's such a concentrated way of, of watching movies socially. So I actually think we're, we're in, a, in a kind of a golden age in terms of film festivals may not last forever. Um, this year's lineup has a long list of very highly anticipated films. And I'm just sort of picking a few out of the air because the program is quite long. Uh, Buster's Mal Hard, Free Fire, Loving, American Honey, how do you and your programmers find these gems? What are some things that just stick out to you when you're when you're programming the festival and you say this we have to include this, we have to include that? What are some qualities that just stick out right away? I think the the main advantage we have as a festival is that we have a, a fairly large programming team and 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 you know, I try to give them as much autonomy as possible. So I'm really interested in when people get excited about movies. Um, we're also in a position where, although we uh, about half the films we show are, are brand new, they're world premieres, the other half have often been to other festivals. So we go to Sundance, we go to Berlin and Rotterdam and Hong Kong and, and Cannes and, and look for the best films we can find. And when we have a programmer who is just, you know, over the moon about a movie, then we pay attention and, you know, I'll, I'll make sure I see it. We talk about it. And that's how films often get into the festival. And then on the other hand, you know, we have uh, over the last 41 years developed a reputation of launching movies pretty well. And, and so a lot of people come to us, filmmakers, uh, the, the companies that sell movies and distribute movies will come to us and say, look, we've got a film or films that we think uh, will launch really well in Toronto. People love the audiences here and they want that experience for their premiere. 
And so we're in a fortunate position where people will come to us and say, your, my movie has to be in your festival. And that happens way more often than we can respond with a yes, of course. Uh, but it gives us the opportunity to choose what we think are the strongest films that are going to work best in front of the Toronto audience. So in addition to the films that we see at other festivals, we're also traveling around the world. And, you know, I'm going to London and Paris and Beijing and L.A. and other cities and, and watching movies and choosing the films that, that just kind of spark something in me. And, and when I find a movie that I'm excited by, that surprises me, that gives me something new, you know, I jump on it. Well, it's, it's good that you're mentioning how, you know, the movie process kind of works because I feel like a lot of people watch movies, but they don't understand the business and the logistics and the production yes. behind making them. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Especially when people often talk about, you know, inclusion and diversity in Hollywood, they don't understand sometimes it's the movie making process that sometimes hinders some of that or is sometimes behind. If you could tell something to the average movie fan who's upset about a lack of diversity, one thing, what would you tell them to get them to kind of expand their knowledge of how things work? It's a business. <laughs> and, you know, it's a business that a lot of us are deeply invested in, uh, whether or not we work in the business, because movies move us emotionally. And we all have things we want to see on big screen. Mostly, in many cases, what we want to see is something that reflects our own lives, right? Something that, that, that inspires us, that connects with us somehow. And if you, if you go to movie after movie and you don't see that because you're not seeing yourself reflected back at you from the big screen, that's, that's aggravating and it's unfair and it shouldn't be like that. So I think that's, uh, that's partly, partly where that push for diversity that so many of us are a part of is coming from. You know, more of us want to see ourselves, at least in part, up on screen more often. But the people who are making business decisions about movies don't really care about how we feel. Right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so true. <laughs> they, they care about making money. <laughs> and they're putting down a lot of money to make movies. Movies cost millions of dollars each time. Even low-budget movies cost millions of dollars. And the first goal of people that put that money down or, or run around the world trying to secure that money is getting the money back in somebody's bank account. And so all the other things come later, but I think what the you know the optimistic sign is that they people who finance the movies have figured out the diversity sells and that actually is a way to make money. You only have to look at the the Fury 7 movie or many many others straight out of Compton and many others which will tell you that a lot of the kind of the myths about uh, diversity in the international film industry, you know, people are outside of U.S. don't go to see black movies. Not true. They're often not presented to distributors, and that's why they're not buying them, and the audiences aren't turning up because they're not available. That's um, shit. Sorry, that's like my yeah. biggest so thing. Just say it is. It. <laughs> it, it's ridiculous, you know. And and it, it's not just with black movies. There's so many. You know, I've I've had somebody up here in Canada say to me, you know, there's there's an incredible true story that happened with, um, you know, an Asian family here in Canada. And they said, well, we can't make that in a movie because. You know, all the care, all the subjects are Chinese. Nobody's going to go see that. Well, that's also ridiculous, you know. So the that notion of taking a kind of a white protagonist as the default and as the only one that everybody can identify with, that's fading away. I think people have figured out that that's just nonsense. And and so once the people who are putting their own money in uh, see that diversity is a way to actually secure their money, we've seen so many films fail recently that were made with an old mindset, then I think mm -hmm. you're going to start to see kind of a, you know, a, a snowball effect in terms of uh, diversity. Yeah, uh, we're waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Patiently. <laughs> Patiently. Yeah, just sitting here. Just, yeah, I live in home. Here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel, um, you know, with the slate at TIFF and with all the other festivals, I do feel it. Like as a moviegoer and just as someone that enjoys films, it, I feel it. For TIFF, Particularly, I would say there's always seems to be great stories both in and outside of the festival. Um, since you've been involved with the festival for so long, can you maybe share a story from your past about, you know, a surprise that happened at TIFF or something that was just completely memorable for you about the way a film presented or had an audience reaction? You know, one one of the, the screenings I'll always remember is when we showed Precious here at the festival. And Precious premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. I was in the Eccles Theater at the Sundance Festival uh, in that January when it launched. And uh, I remember watching Lee Daniels up at the front of the room, you know, just 
responding in tears to the reaction of the audience. And then I, I actually think Oprah got on the phone with him while he was doing the Q and A. Wow. And by the time we showed the movie, <laughs> Oprah had come on board of the film as had Tyler Perry and they just brought everybody to Toronto. And I decided to, to program it as a gala in our, in our biggest theater, which is a 2000 seat uh, house called Roy Thompson hall. And that night, you know, Roy Thompson Hall, it's, a, it's a biggest house, and we don't typically have films like Precious, which, you know, the content's a little challenging for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's some tough, tough, tough things to watch in that movie. But I thought this has the emotional impact that, that can play in a house that big. And besides, Oprah's coming. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, queen. So, <laughs> so we put it in this huge house. Just the energy in that room was unlike anything else that I'd ever experienced in that in Roy Thompson Hall that night. There were so many people who, that was the one movie at the Toronto Film Festival they were coming to see. They wanted to see the the movie that Oprah said they had to see. They wanted to see Lee Daniels' new movie. They'd heard about Gabby Sidibe. They wanted to see her as well. And so, you know, I went out to introduce the movie that night. And Lee Daniels comes out, and Gabby comes out, and and Mariah Carey comes out, and uh, Mary J. Blige comes out, and and Tyler Perry comes out, and then Oprah comes out, and people lost their minds. It was unbelievable. You know, everybody's on their feet. Two thousand people. Flash bulbs are going off like crazy. People are screaming in the house, and that was before the movie even started, and it was just the most highly charged electric atmosphere I've ever witnessed in any movie theater anywhere. And I thought, okay, that's something that a film festival can do. And then by the end of the movie, same thing, you know, people were drained. They were just so, they'd been just taken through so much emotionally. And I thought that's why we do this. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just had wow. black royalty on stage for like yeah. an evening. <laughs> yes. Golly, I yeah. would have loved to have been there. Well, um, I guess asking you to choose a favorite of the TIFF programming is like trying to get you to say which is your favorite child. So I won't do that. (laughs) But is there a film that you're particularly excited to see with an audience? Because I saw Hardcore Henry and I Mm. love that movie. And I felt that movie is like the perfect example of like there's a movie and then they're seeing that movie with an audience. Um, Mm -hmm. What is your film like that this year? Uh, there are so many. There's a film we saw in London uh, in June called Lady Macbeth by a new director named Will Oldroyd. It is, it's shockingly good. It's, it's so intense, so beautifully written, so um, just full of tension. Highly recommended. It's about a woman who essentially, you know, has boundless appetites and no remorse and just does whatever she wants. And I loved watching that. I can't wait to see that with an audience. Moonlight, Barry Jenkins's movie, is one of the most beautiful things I've seen on screen in years. I'm so glad to see him coming back after Medicine for Melancholy. It's been a long wait, but, you know, Barry's delivered. Can't wait for the people to see that. In terms of the conversation about diversity, I think people are going to see how well that movie does across the board. I think that everybody's going to want to see Moonlight. And then Raul Peck has made a new film. Yes, that we're called, gonna cover. Um, we're interviewing him. Oh, as well. Okay, good, yeah. good. It's called "I'm Not Your Negro." I can't wait. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing story. I saw him in France a, a couple months ago, and I, I didn't know this, but he told me that he made a film about Patrice Lumumba, which is one of the best docs ever made. I think about uh, African liberation, and one of the relatives of James Baldwin had seen that film, and he went to visit her outside of Washington D.C. a few years ago. She already knew who he was, and when he asked to have any kind of access to you know Baldwin's material, his stories. She said yes right away. And so he's got footage in this film and, and use of Baldwin's uh, writing that no other filmmakers ever had because she so liked what he did with Patrice Lumumba. So that, that's how this film got made and, and it's fantastic. Uh, I can't wait for that one. In fact, I just was writing about it. I feel like not enough people know his story. I can't wait for that to like Mm-hmm. well known so yes. yeah very excited about I'm not your Negro anyway um, I know you're really busy because this is right before the festival <laughs> gets going so we want to yes. thank you so much for spending the time to chat with us today um, it my was pleasure great.
right. Thank, thank you. you. And I, I feel like there's so many other movies I didn't mention. I didn't talk about Amasante's beautiful movie. I didn't talk about Ramadou Keita's movie. Anyhow, just go and find all these great movies that we're showing. And I hope uh, I hope people can come up and, and see some of them. Yes. And you guys can follow us um, for our coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival at BGN T-I-F-F. That's BGN TIFF. Thank you, guys. Tahir Jeter is the director and writer of How to Tell You're a Douchebag, which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. The film did so well that he was signed by Verve and is now represented under the firm. His film was inspired by his own comedic challenges as a single man in today's social media-driven dating world. Jeter also created the web series Hard Times and got his BFA in film production from NYU and moved to Los Angeles. Hi, welcome to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I am your host, KB, and today I have writer, director, and producer of the film How to Tell Your Douchebag, Tahir Jeter. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> this is Tahir Jeter, writer, director, producer of How to Tell Your Douchebag. Happy to be here on uh, Black Girl Nerds. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'll just jump right in. So the film takes place in, in New York City and kind of is a unique take on one man's journey into realizing that he's a douchebag and not necessarily kind of the good guy that he's always thought himself to be. So what inspired you to write this story and how much of it came from a place of personal experiences? All of it came from a place of personal experience. I, uh, yeah, I was pursuing somebody that like essentially didn't reciprocate and I didn't take it in the most healthy fashion. And I was just kind of looking at a lot of my behavior and a lot of the things that were going through my mind at the time. And I kind of felt like I needed to like unpack the reasons that I felt the way that I did to do so in a way that I felt like a lot of other guys and women could relate to. So that's where that came from. Wow. Yeah, because the main character has a bit of entitlement issues, right? Like <laughs> when you see him, he kind of feels entitled to a lot of things in the world. But that, I mean, the path that you really go down is just one of within dating relationships. And so it is interesting to see his journey. But wow, I can't I can't believe all of it came from a place of personal experience. But it is, I mean, how healthy is it really to just get everything written down and, and kind of create art out of out of the journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I approach a lot of my stuff from a autobiographical kind of standpoint. I think it makes writing uh, a fairly easy process. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think in, in my case, I, I fortunately had enough self-awareness that, you know, the story is really a kind of embellishment of a lot of things that I thought about and often didn't really do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's a kind of, Freedom comes with being able to examine some of the more wayward aspects of your personality and kind of magnify them through, you know, work of art, I guess. So that was that was really what informed a lot of my process in terms of just making this happen. Awesome. So the the main character is Ray and he's really good friends with Jake, who provides kind of like um, some insight and wisdom into his situation and to the guy he is. And then there's also Paul, who, you know, not to give too much away, but is another side character. So are Ray, Jake and Paul somewhat crafted all three of them from pieces of your personality? So I know that you just mentioned that, you know, Ray's story is based on a lot of your experiences. But are there parts of you and Jake and Paul as well? Well, so like Ray, I feel like Ray and Jake are alternating poles of my own personality. Paul is kind of like this villain that I crafted just in terms of thinking about like the, the type of guy that I would hate for a woman that I was pursuing to go after. But he's kind of this, <laughs> you know, composite diva dude who I think I have a lot of fun with because I think there are a lot of guys like Paul. But 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 I yeah, I mean, I, Ray is more so like my main kind of like anxious, angsty kind of side. And then I think Jake is a little bit more in line with who I who I feel like I am when I'm like my most healthy and when I'm my most like my best adjusted. You know, I feel like I kind of vacillate between those two. Uh, and I have for a long time, especially as I've, as I've kind of matured and gotten older. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's those two 
kind of comprise my personality, I would say. Okay. I love that you said that Paul is the type of guy that you would hate that a woman <laughs> would end up with. And like when yeah. people see the film, they'll understand why. Because <laughs> there are just certain things about Paul that you're like, I do not wish this type of individual on like my worst enemy. Alex Mulzak, by the way, I mean, all my actors I thought were pretty great, but like Alex Mulzak, I told him to be a kind of composite of Prince and Lenny Kravitz, and I feel like he, he kind of <laughs> took that with it in a way that I was really very happy with. So, it, you know, I think I think people will like Paul. He's a lot of fun. Right. <laughs> so just a question about like types of film that you like. So what film that was released within the past five years really inspired you? And do you find yourself kind of pulling elements or things that you liked from that film and using it in your own work? It's interesting because like this movie was actually really unlike a lot of the stuff that I'm looking to make in the future. I kind of really only made a romantic comedy because it was the thing that I felt like I could do really quickly and in a short period of time. But a lot of the stuff that I like is much more dark and uh, a little bit more fucked up than I mean. So like I like I don't know. There's this there's this director named Jeremy Saulnier uh, who made this movie called Blue Ruin and Green Room, who I really like. I actually really like my homeboy uh, Barry Jenkins movie Moonlight, which is coming out, I think, in October. It's like really, really good. It's this coming of age story about a black man who happens to be gay who's growing up in Florida, I think, in either the 80s or the 90s. And it's like really, really, it's a really good film uh, stylistically. And there's also this movie called Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is this kind of obscure psychological thriller that i'm really into i mean i i i am a director who i think wants to most times hit people in a really visceral way and i think this movie was a kind of departure from that but it was kind of a strategic means to an end and just in terms of just kind of getting my career started and getting my my name out there so i think a lot of the comedies that i do in the future will be a little bit more dark and probably a lot more edgy but you know i was i mean i was pleased to be able to do this one because it's in keeping with a lot of the the older new york rom-coms that i think i really enjoy so okay okay yeah it <laughs> yeah. sounds like you're like a little bit of darker psychological films which are always yeah so interesting but i have to check out the ones you just mentioned because i've actually never seen outside of the one from barry jenkins because it hasn't been released yet but the other three yeah. i have not seen or heard of so thank you for that <laughs> So back to this film, how important was it for Ray to meet his match, you know, in the the female lead Rochelle's character, you know, and, and what do you think they taught each other from their brief yet substantial interactions? It was important for me to craft uh, women characters that were complex and, and interesting, particularly because this this, you know, like the Ray character is supposed to be emblematic of a lot of. Uh, male entitlement in a, in a very kind of modern fashion. And especially in a, it's kind of as is viewed through a black male kind of experience. And so I think that like having spent a lot of time online these past few years, I've seen a, I think growing combativeness between men and women of color and particularly black men and women. And I kind of wanted to capture that in a way that I felt would be true to the zeitgeist. Uh, and so for that reason, you know, Ray is such a, a bumbling, but also kind of grandiose character that I felt <laughs> like he needed somebody that could, that you could, you could watch on screen and adequately feel as though, you know, she was going to essentially give him the work, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, I, and I think DeWanda Wise, who plays Rochelle and is also one of our executive producers did a fantastic job at that. Yeah, I mean, but that was important because I think I, 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 you know, online I see so many outspoken, you know, womanists and like feminist writers who are always taking men to task for their behavior in a number of ways. And I was like, well, you know, what I haven't seen in terms of a romantic comedy is this like interplay between, you know, all these things that we already kind of know to be true about relationships between black men and women. I mean, I, there's a, there's a quote in the movie where, Rochelle alludes to the fact that black women are outpacing black men. And, and, and I think that we, you know, especially, you know, straight black men feel that, uh, as we, as we pursue black women and try to court black women, like it, it really kind of informs 
the ways in which we we date and in, and the ways in which we uh, engage with each other. And so for me, that was really it, it was important to to point that out and uh, explore that in a way that felt real. Yeah, and I like the way, you know, Rochelle, you're right. I mean, Rochelle doesn't let him get away with anything. There's actually not one thing that that Ray can get away with, whether it be like career-wise, personally. There is just this one part where she, he basically asks her out on the date for the first time, and the date that he's asking her to go out on, she's like, that's lame, why would I do that? I mean, she literally just doesn't, like, (laughs) she doesn't let him rest, you know, in any sense. And so she is definitely his match for sure and she kind of makes him you know see a lot of things that that are wrong with himself and and makes him confront a lot of things head on right because she doesn't let him rest so (laughs) so when you set out to make this film I mean what was the overall goal so outside of just your own personal healing and really being able to unpack a lot of things from your personal experiences you know what did you want the audiences to walk away with I wanted audiences to walk away with some, I guess, willingness to consider their own behavior in terms of how they pursue relationships. I think that because of the ways that we engage with each other, you know, because of the fact that everything is is so virtual nowadays, I think there's a certain propensity for a lack of accountability uh, between people. And I think that I guess I just wanted to raise questions about behavior or get people to think about moments in which they had been, I guess, less than forthright with other people that they had been engaging with on a romantic level, you know? So I guess, I guess I would want people to come away with a consideration of their own willingness to be compassionate, you know? So that's really, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a movie that's about the times. And I think right now when everybody is kind of swiping left and swiping right and, (laughs) and like, (laughs) And, uh, you know, breaking up over text message and whatnot, I, I, I guess I just figured it would be nice if we had a moment where we could just kind of think, well, maybe we should try to be a little bit kinder to each other. So, yeah, makes makes perfect sense <laughs> in this day and age for sure. So um, who was your favorite character? You know, I really appreciated kind of the, the motherly character on, on Ray's block also yeah. because she held nothing back and she really kind of in addition to Rochelle created a mirror for Ray to kind of look into and truly see himself. Right. So who would you say was kind of, you know, your favorite character? I saw that question and I feel like it's such a tough question because it's like, you know, all these people have come out of my brain. And so I have an affinity for them in different ways. I mean, mm-hmm. Ray, I like because I feel like he is so ridiculous and he is such a, you know, he is such a kind of representation of who I have been and who I am to a certain extent. But then, and Rochelle is also just like I, I dig Rochelle because I've never seen a character like her on screen, but I also know that there are a lot of women who are like Rochelle, you know? Right. And then I think Jake is just extremely funny. Paul is just really funny. Yasmin is also just like compelling in a way that you don't expect and, and like soft spoken in a very kind of sweet way. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like all these characters I've written because I feel like they all orbit this like this ecosystem that I really I've always been a part of. And so I guess it, it I mean, yeah, I kind of like them all. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, <laughs> just tell us, you know, what's next for you? What new projects are in the works? Um, I know you said that romantic comedies aren't really your thing. So what genre are you looking to get into next? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff. We'll see how fast I can get this next movie off the ground, but I'm actually working on, and I'm going to be a little vague because I don't want to give too much away, but I'm, I'm working on this psychological thriller about a woman who fixates on a coworker and kind of unravels when things go awry. It's pretty sexually charged. I'm working on, I want to start doing research for a civil rights biopic about a pretty prominent leader who nobody's really surprisingly done a biopic about, but I, I think would be you know, everybody would kind of really be interested in him because he kind of predated Malcolm and Martin and laid the groundwork for a lot of their ideology at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, I also want to do an absurdist uh, satire about what it takes for black people to get access to marijuana, particularly as we're seeing all of these startup companies, you know, take advantage of the marijuana market after black people have, you know, kind of been 
<laughs> kind of been dealing in it for many, many years. So, I, you know, those are the kind of things I'm working on right now. And then I'm also putting some TV ideas together. So we'll see what happens first. I'm just, that's, that's pretty much what I'm working on. And then, oh yeah. And then there's like a coming of age story I want to do about my life growing up in Maryland. It's kind of like, how would I put this? It's kind of like <laughs> those movies that you don't see anymore. It's a, it's a drama about what happens when you go down the wrong path. So that's all I'll say. But yeah, I'm working on a bunch of movies and a bunch of ideas for TV. So hopefully this won't be the last one that you see. Yeah, no, of course not. Sounds amazing. And, and definitely, you know, let us know when you have things out and ready to go so we can view them and, and get you on the show again to talk about them and discuss them, you know, at great length, for sure. Yeah, no, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for joining the podcast. If you would please just, darn it, I forgot to get your social media handle. What's your social media handle? Uh, for the film or for myself personally? Just for yourself personally, so people can find you. Sure, sure. So if you go on Twitter, I'm just, my name is, you know, it's twitter.com slash Tahir Jetter. So that's that. And then if you search on Facebook, you can find how to tell your douchebag on Facebook. But yeah, if you search for my name on, on Twitter, I'm, I'm there. Perfect. Thanks so much. Have a good evening. You too. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various segments on all podcast episodes are edited by M.R. Daniel and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our podcast is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals used throughout podcast episodes are created by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find our shows on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. That was a HeadGum Podcast.